Just a one announcement before we uh, turn our attention to God's word this morning. Just one thing to update you on. That is to say that throughout the month of December, we uh, every year... We do a Christmas giving project where we take special offering towards a project that we want to partner with. And for the last three years, uh, we've been partnering with the Ally Global Foundation. We've been raising money to, uh, to assist in the rescuing people out of uh, human trafficking, sex trafficking. And we've been doing that three years now. Uh, I can tell you that uh, every year we've set our goal a little bit higher in terms of what we want to raise. Uh, this year we set a goal of... $20,000, uh, and as of uh, December 31st, uh, we exceeded that goal. In fact, we raised $40,722, so fantastic. Uh, thank you for your generosity towards that. We know it will make a significant difference in the lives of many individuals, and we're uh, super glad to partner with that ministry. Let me just pray as we open the Bible together this morning. Father, we want to thank you for... This opportunity, this time, we're doing it differently than we uh, normally do it, but uh, it's a great opportunity all the same at the start of a new year to open your word and hear what it has to say to us. God, I pray you would just open our hearts and minds to receive your truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you do have a Bible uh, in front of you, I want to encourage you to open it to Joshua chapter 1. And while you're locating that, let me just say welcome to 2022. Uh, I think a new year on our calendar always brings with it a lot of aspirations, a lot of hopes, and even a lot of predictions as to what this next year might hold. But I think if the last two years have taught us anything, they have taught us, hopefully, that we're probably wrong about what the future holds. Uh, It has always been true But I think the words from James 4 ought to be writ large over all of our plans for the future. James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And then he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We ought to say that. If the Lord wills, this or that will happen. We do not know what will happen in this next year or even in this next month or even tomorrow. I mean, we, didn't, we did not plan for a pipe to burst in the Clova this week and for a flood to take place in here, but here we are. I didn't actually even plan to preach. This morning I had scheduled or booked my friend Vin Doan to come Uh, But he and his family had an unexpected sort of last-minute opportunity to uh, head back to Australia for the Christmas holidays, and so here I am. I think we're all used to living with the unexpected these days, and if I were to sum up this message, it would be the future is unknown, but the future is friendly. You know, I think there's a lot of things that we take for granted today that won't even be around 10 years from now. There are technologies that will come and go. There are careers and industries that will simply vanish. There are institutions that will no longer exist. And there are people who we know and love right now who will no longer be living. Life is filled with constant change. And it can seem at times like the only constant in our world is change. 
Way back in the 5th century, the ancient Greek philosopher Hercules claimed that it was impossible for a person to step into the same stream twice. And his point was that by the time you take your foot out and stand on the shore and put it back into the water again, the currents and the eddies have all changed and it is, in a sense, a different stream. Life feels like that at times, doesn't it? Like it's just always changing. Nothing remains the same. Now, I think there's a lot about that that we like. I mean, we like things to evolve and change. We get a sense of progress like we're moving forward. But I think in a world where things are always changing, it's good to know that there are some things that never change. It's good to know that despite all the changes taking place around us, There are things that don't change regardless of the season or what's in fashion. And so I entitled this message, The Future is Friendly. And I want you to keep that in mind as we read through Joshua chapter 1. And this is what it says. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people pass through the midst of the camp and command the people prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess verse 12 and to the Reubenites the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh Joshua says remember the word that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you saying the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land Your wives and your little ones and your livestock remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward The sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And whatever wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, 
shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Well, the historical setting of this passage is that the Israelites were on the verge of entering into the promised land. It's a transitional passage. It marks the end of one era and the beginning of another. It was a time of great change for Israel. It was a time of great joy for the nation because they were finally about to possess what God had promised to them. But it was also a time of sadness because Moses, their leader, had just died. And I think there's a lot to learn from us in this passage, especially if we are living in a period of transition ourselves, or even if we're just beginning a new year as we are and wanting it to go well. So I want to unpack this passage under four main headings, the promises of God, the presence of God, the word of God, and the people of God. So let's start with what we learn about the promises of God. I've already highlighted the context of the passage, but you can see it for yourself in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. It's good to stop and think about the significance of Moses' death and what it meant for the Israelites. Moses was one of the, is one of the key figures of the Old Testament. Moses, in fact, is the key human figure in the first five books of the Bible. If you turn back just one page in your Bible to the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, the last two verses of the book of Deuteronomy say this. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him. For all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. So Moses was this unique leader. There was no one like him. He was the leader that the people looked to. He's the one that gave them their marching orders. And even here in Joshua chapter 1, after his death, you get a sense of the impact and the importance of his life just by virtue of the fact that his name is mentioned 11 times in these 18 verses. So one commentator asks this question, although you expected it, were informed of it, were prepared for it, what do you do when the servant of the Lord dies and a raging river lies between you and the land you are to inherit? See, this was the question facing the Israelites. Well, what do we do now? Moses is dead. And notice what God tells them to do in verse 2. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, wait. That's not what it says. Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, weep. It's not what it says either. What it says is, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, rise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them. So what's the lesson in that? That we should be cold and uncaring about death? That's not it. The lesson is that while Moses might die, God's promise lives on. John Calvin offered this helpful comment on this event. The language is a bit archaic, but it's it's really quite profound. 
And he said this, this suggests the very useful reflection that while men are cut off by death and fail in the middle of their career, the faithfulness of God never fails. On the death of Moses, a sad change seemed impending. The people were left like a body with its head lopped off. While thus in danger of dispersion, not only did the truth of God prove itself to be immortal, but it was shown in the presence, in the person of Joshua, as in a bright mirror, that when God takes away those whom he has adorned with special gifts, he has others in readiness to supply their place. And that though he is pleased for a time to give excellent gifts to some, his mighty power is not tied down to them. But he is able, as often as seemeth good to him, to find fit successors, nay, to raise them up from the very stones, persons qualified to perform illustrious deeds. The point is that God's promises are not dependent on a person, no matter how great that person might be. God's promises are dependent on God and God alone. And what we learn about God or what we ought to learn about God is that God always keeps his promises. You know, when our kids were younger, they would often say uh, things like, Daddy, can you play with me? Or Daddy, can you read me a story? And I would sometimes respond by saying, well, you know, not right now, but I will do it before you go to bed. And what I learned was that that was a really foolish thing to say to a child. Because kids' memories work especially well, and especially well at bedtime, right? They might forget things all through the day, but if it means staying up for a few more minutes, their memories work amazingly well. They remember all the promises you made throughout the day. So I learned that I needed to be careful not to make promises too lightly, and I also learned that I wanted my kids to know that they could trust what I said. Now, I haven't always kept my promises, but I learned that if I said I was going to do something, I ought to do it and fulfill the promise. And God is the same way. He wants us to know that we can have complete confidence in what he has promised to us. The book of Numbers puts it this way, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And the answer is a resounding no. When God promises, he fulfills. So God made a covenant with the nation of Israel, and he will be faithful to fulfill that covenant. His gifts and his calling are irrevocable. So verse 3 says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Notice verse 6 as well. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, we can go back and actually find the specific promises that God made to his people about this land. The promise that he made through Moses. So in Deuteronomy chapter 11, God said, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. 
God's fulfilling that promise now. But we could go back even further to the time of Abraham and find this promise. Where God said, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. If you think about the story of Abraham, then you know that Abraham was no stranger to living with a promise. And if you know his story, you might remember that God promised that he would make him into a great nation with descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. There was just one problem. Abraham and his wife were advancing in years and had no children. And in fact, there was a 30-year gap between God's promise to Abraham and God's fulfillment of that promise. But what Abraham learned in the process is that God always keeps his promises. And we ought to learn that same lesson. Now, we might wonder, well, how does this apply to us? I think it's just a good exercise to remind ourselves of the promises that God has given to us. We could think, for instance, about Jesus' promise where he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. See, when we're facing an uncertain future, we ought to remember the promises of God. This passage teaches us something about the promises of God. It also teaches us something about the presence of God. Listen to God's promise to Joshua in verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave or forsake you. Hear it again in verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and be courageous, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Or listen also to what the people say in response to Joshua as their new leader. Down in verse 17, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you only. May the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. So if the people were wondering, what should they do now that Moses, their leader, has died? Joshua was no doubt wondering what he was supposed to do since Moses' death meant that he was now the leader of Israel. And to those questions, God simply replies, I will be with you. So this chapter is about the mantle of leadership being passed from Moses to Joshua. And it's interesting to go back to when God first called Moses to be his spokesman. In Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in a burning bush and he says that Moses is to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the Israelites go because they're in slavery. And Moses responded like this. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. In the very next chapter, Moses tries to weasel out of that task with a different excuse. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, 
Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Now, the situation facing Moses and the situation facing Joshua were somewhat different, but God's word of assurance is exactly the same. I will be with you. And this is God's word of assurance to those who are tempted to shrink back. Read through the book of Joshua in its entirety. You will find this promise given to Joshua over and over again. It's the same word of assurance that's given to us as well in the midst of difficult times. Listen to the familiar words of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I will be with you is the promise that Jesus gave to all of us right before he ascended. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But I will be with you. Speaking about this great promise, Dale Ralph Davis said this. Basically, God has nothing else or more to offer you. You can go through a lot with that promise. It does not answer your questions about details. It only provides the essential. Nothing about when or how or why, only the what or better the who. But I will be with you and that is enough. I will be with you is God's promise of assurance to us. It ought to be a source of comfort regardless of what we might be facing. And what God said to Joshua here, be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And then he tells him, I will not leave you or forsake you. So God never forsakes his people. Back in 1962, the German theologian, Karl Barth, made his one and only visit to the United States. Now, just to give you an idea of how much times have changed since then, at the time, in 1962, Time magazine ran a cover story to commemorate his visit to the United States. And one of the questions he was asked in the interview was, what evidence can you give for the existence of God? Without hesitation, he answered by saying, the Jews. And his point was that throughout a tumultuous history, the Jewish people have sometimes hung by the slenderest of threads as yet another tyrant or enemy sought their extinction, yet for centuries they have survived. So if the lesson from the promises of God is that God always keeps his promises, the lesson from the presence of God is that God never forsakes his people. There may be times when we don't sense God's presence in quite the same way. He might not feel as close to us. But God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And this truth not only helps us face uncertain or unchanging times, it's what allows us to experience contentment regardless of our circumstances. Listen to the New Testament application of this promise from the book of Hebrews. The writer says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. 
For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, you can face a lot with the assurance of God's presence, can't you? So as you look ahead to 2022, what do you think you need most? What is it that will allow you to experience the greatest level of contentment? Or what do you see as the greatest threat to your contentment? Is it the raise or lack of raise you got at the end of the year? Is it a promising forecast for the economy? Is it a set of daunting circumstances that you might be facing that cause you to shrink back? And the thing we need most, according to the Bible, is the knowledge that God is with us. What can man do to me? He will never leave us nor forsake us. The third thing we learn about here is the word of God. And I take this from verses 7 and 8, where God says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. I think there are two truths we learn about God's word here. And that is that we need to know and do what God's word says. So God tells Joshua that this book of the law is not to depart from him and that he's to meditate on it day and night. You know, there's a a crisis of biblical literacy in the church. People simply don't know what the Bible says. And this is a major problem. Through the Old Testament prophet Hosea, God said this, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. So what God says to Joshua here, is that he is to meditate on this book day and night. He's to know it. And this actually is the pattern of every faithful believer throughout history. They meditate on the word of God. Psalm 1 begins by saying, Blessed is the the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, it's the start of the new year, so can I just give you some practical encouragement to meditate on this book? Commit yourself to reading God's Word. number of different approaches and systems you can use as a way to help you with this. You may have your own system for doing this already. I've mentioned to you uh, in the past that this past year I was part of a Formula One fantasy group. It's kind of morphed now into a group of guys who have committed to reading through the Bible in its entirety this year. There are 26 of us in that group right now. We're just basically going through a Bible reading plan for the year, encouraging one another, keeping one another accountable in regards to it. Again, there's a number of good reading plans. I will post a link to a reading plan in the notes section of the sermon on our website this week. But why not commit yourself to reading through the Bible this year, to meditating on God's word day and night? 
But as I said, we need to know and do the Word of God. So the goal is not just to collect as much information as possible. The goal is not just to sort of check off the box that says, I read through the Bible this year. Verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So one of the core values of our church is that we are shaped by God's word. And it would be a real shame for us to undertake a task like that, read through the Bible in the year, and at the end of the year see no results in our lives because we haven't put it into practice. We need to read it with a view to doing what it says. James says this, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James uses the illustration of a mirror to make his point. Mirrors aren't just for admiring ourselves, right? I mean, part of the purpose of a mirror is that we see things that we need to change. So if there's a piece of broccoli stuck in our teeth, if there's some, you know, hair is out of, whatever it might be, we see things and we say, well, I need to make that change. Mirrors can be really helpful in that way. I think I shared this story with you when I preached through the book of James. But I had an experience a few years back where a mirror would have come in really handy. I went down to a Seahawks game uh, with a couple of friends in Seattle. We parked the car and one of my friends who uh, we were with said, you know, I, I brought jerseys for us to wear to the game. Now, I'm not really a big jersey guy, but I'm a good sport. So I put it on over my hoodie. I zipped up my jacket And then at halftime, I went and met up with some friends down on the concourse. And on the way down, this guy goes, hey, that's a cool jersey. Never seen one like that before. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's kind of an old school jersey. I'm I'm feeling pretty cool about myself. Anyway, I meet up with my friends. We take a picture together. And I'm looking through my pictures later. And I notice that my jersey is totally on backwards. A mirror would have been really helpful because I would have turned that thing around. I might, have well, might as well have just walked around with a big L on my forehead, right? The Bible is a mirror for us. When we look into it, it reveals things that we need to change. If you just read it and don't do what it says, you're deceiving yourself. And self-deception is the worst kind of deception. Now, I don't want to cast this just in a negative light. Because when you look at verses 7 and 8 here in Joshua 1, just notice what the results are of living by God's word. Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all, that, all the law that Moses, my servant, commands you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. This is not prosperity gospel stuff. It's not saying follow the Bible and you'll be healthy and wealthy. 
But let me also say, I think there are some blessings from God that are conditional to our obedience to God's word. And sometimes the reason we don't experience the blessings of God in our lives, in our relationships, or in our finances, is because we're not doing things his way. So let's make it our ambition this year, not just to read God's word, but to do God's word. I think you know this already, but I like reading and quoting dead guys, uh, partly because I don't need to worry that they're going to sort of undo in their latter years all the good work that they did in their early years. And one of my favorite dead guys to quote is J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop who lived in the 1800s. And he said this, next to praying, there is nothing so important in practical religion as Bible reading. God has mercifully given us a book which is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. By reading that book, we may learn what to believe, what to be, and what to do, how to live with comfort, how to die in peace. And then he says, happy is the man who possesses a Bible. Happier still is the one who reads it. Happiest of all is he who not only reads it, but obeys it and makes it the rule of his faith and practice. Such a good word of counsel to us. Happiest is the man who not only reads it, but obeys it and makes it the rule of his faith and practice. So can I just encourage you? Be shaped by God's word this year. So this passage teaches us something about the promise of God. It teaches us something about the presence of God, the word of God. And the fourth thing we learn about is the people of God. And this comes from the concluding section of the chapter. Verses 12 to 15 again say this. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that, the, that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. Now this might be the part of the message where some of you are just tempted to check out. I mean, what possible relevance could all this talk about the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh have for us in 2022? Well, the background for this was an earlier episode in Israel's history. So Israel's now about to enter into the Promised Land, but the story that this goes back to is found in the book of Numbers, chapter 32. Let me just read part of it for you. Now the people of Reuben... And the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock, and they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar, the priest, and to the chiefs of the congregation, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eli- Eliela, Sebam, Nebo, and beyond, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. 
But Moses said to the people of God and to the, or Gad and the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord your God has given them? So the situation was this. They're on their way to the promised land, but as they're on their way, these tribes, they see good land and they say, look, we don't need to go all the way into across the Jordan into that land. Why can't we just settle here? And Moses says, well, that's fine. Look, you can settle here. This is good land. You can have houses and livestock and everything you want to your heart's content. But just know this. Your brothers are crossing over the Jordan and they're going to be facing all sorts of opposition. And it's not okay for you to sit there in your comfort while they're suffering and struggling. The only way we're truly a nation is if we're in this together is what Moses is saying to them. Now, I don't want to exacerbate this point, but can't you see how this is a picture of what the church is supposed to look like. The people of God, united together. So Paul will say it differently, but really he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So just imagine... If all the Christians in North America said something like, look, I know that our Christian brothers and sisters all around the world are suffering. Some of them are experiencing persecution for their faith. Some of them are living in war-torn countries, living in abject poverty. I'm sure glad we don't have to experience anything like that. We can just remain here comfortable. Now, this is just hypothetically speaking, right? Look, this is what is true. We are the people of God. And when our brothers and sisters suffer, whether it's here or elsewhere, we enter into that with them because we are one people of God together. We are members of the body of Christ committed to one another. So as we head into 2022, I don't think there's more that we ought to think about or anything more important for us to think about and reflect on than the promises of God, the presence of God, the word of God and the people of God. Let's make those our priorities this year. And this passage or this chapter ends like this. It ends with a commitment on the part of the people and this is what they say. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us we will do and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. And let's just, I want to just pray for you for just that sense of courage in a new year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great promises this morning, those things that give us assurance that you will do what you've said you will do. We thank you for your presence, that we do not go anywhere without you being with us. We thank you for your word that guides and directs us and teaches us how we ought to live and what we ought to do. 
And we thank you for your people, the church. And even today, as we're separated from one another for different reasons, Lord, we thank you that we are part of the people of God. We are brothers and sisters together in Christ. And we pray that this year would be a year of growth in our understanding of what it means to be the people of God together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.